Um, I kind of actually feel like Grace should give the sermon today because <laughs> who better to give the message than on Grace than the person who's named Grace, right? Um, <laughs> grace, 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 Grace. Uh, how you guys doing? God's good. Amen. Um, <laughs> God is good. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 15 today. And uh, so you can turn there. I uh, will be reading through that here momentarily. The, uh, uh, it is, uh, it's good that we have a father who is good and that we don't have to rely on our own goodness. <laughs> um, and uh, I think for, for your sake as well this morning, uh, the, the, the fact that God is good gives me confidence that even though um, I am unsettled about uh, this message today, not in the content, but in how to deliver the content, uh, means that even though I'm unsettled, he's good. That means he's got something for you. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, so Matt, no matter how much I botch it, God is good. Uh, and he will use it for his glory. Uh, so that's, that's, that's amazing. It's just been an interesting week, uh, preparation for the sermon. You know, you get, I, I kind of was almost back into a rhythm again. You know, I talked about how God had disrupted my sermon prep uh, back in the spring, especially, and kind of things started, you know, just kind of things were changed, and he wanted me to do different things, and, and even one time preaching a message that I had not prepared for at all, and just in the moment, he changed uh, the topic, right? And, and God is good in all of that. Not, not me. He is good. He is amazing. Um, he has done it all. But uh, then I kind of, you know, I've been getting into a settle, you know, settling into a rhythm again, and everything was great, and then yesterday, he messed everything up again. <clears throat> But I trust that he wants to continue to work on me and teach me and develop me. But as he's doing that, that doesn't mean that you have to suffer. He's, he's, he's got good for you as well. So, all right, so that I, I'm saying too much. Anyway, moving on. We're going to read Acts 15, and then uh, we'll see where we go from there. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they sent off... They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, they remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This debate in uh, Acts chapter 15 had a massive impact on the early church. The decision made in Jerusalem radically shifted their view of salvation, and the ramifications had powerfully re- have powerfully reverberated through church history to this very day. 
It was not merely a concern over what to do with the Gentiles who had accepted Jesus and had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a simple discussion about how best to incorporate these outsiders into the church. It wasn't a matter of settling down, setting down qualifications for becoming members of the way. No, the decision was about whether the traditional way of salvation was still a viable option. They were debating whether or not acceptance by God could come outside of their personal observance of the law. They'd spent their lives being taught that the law was the center of everything. It was the way of pleasing God. And without strict obedience to it, they would once again be exiled from the promised land. Access to God was through aligning their life perfectly with his revealed will. The natural conclusion, if Jesus was indeed the Messiah they'd been waiting for, and if he was the one the prophets had promised was coming, then he would live, serve, and uphold the Jewish view of the law. Of course, in Jesus' life, he often did things that seemed to them contradictory to the law, healing on the Sabbath, eating with the unclean and associating with prostitutes and tax collectors, but he still seemed to respect the law, that they had interpreted it incorrect, and perhaps they had interpreted it incorrectly. Perhaps they'd misunderstood what Jesus was teaching. But surely, being Jewish, the Messiah, he saw the law as being central to salvation, not just before he arrived, but even now after his incredible resurrection. However, the key leaders of the rising Jewish sect argued that salvation no longer came through the law, but instead through grace, by grace, through faith. They started with this obvious signs in their argument that, that God was indeed accepting the Gentiles despite their lack of knowledge and, their, and observance of the law. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on them in, in, some of the, in the same ways they had themselves experienced him. But they went beyond these physical evidences and using Old Testament passages, they even made a case that not only had God always planned to include the Gentiles in salvation, but that he'd always planned for salvation to be as a result of his amazing grace. Peter points to how the yoke of the law is a burden that neither their forefathers nor they have been able to bear. He then unequivocally declares in verse 10, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Perhaps at this point, Peter reminds them of Joel, which he quoted in his first evangelistic sermon right after being baptized by the Spirit, where the only requirement for salvation is revealed, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The result of this great debate, while being a radical shift from the traditions and the previous understanding of the law and of salvation, prompted the first Christian creed. It only had two statements in this creed. First, 
both Jews and Gentiles were saved by grace. And second, abstain from idols worship, idol worship and the behaviors of those who worship them. These clear statements of the early believers were essential to the expansion of the church and to uniting Christian Jews and Gentiles. Knowing that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament law, and as Paul will later communicate in more completeness when he writes the book of Romans, offered righteousness not through our own efforts, but by putting our faith in the efforts of Jesus. But shockingly, the first century Judaizers have not gone away. Despite 2,000 years of teaching salvation by grace, Christians are still struggling to accept it. While the debates are over, the battle against it is not. Salvation by grace is fully accepted in the church as an essential theological doctrine, but we individually and corporately fight against it. Not openly, but subtly, behind the scenes. We dare not contradict such a clear passage like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your, uh, of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work so that no one may boast. But grace does not fit into our worldview. More specifically, it grinds actually against our very nature. The fact is, we are so offended by grace, we instinctively and continually hang extra hoops around the cross of Jesus. Working for what we have is so natural. It is so completely a part of every aspect of our lives that like the Judaizers of the early church, we, without even realizing it, work against salvation by grace. For us humans, legalism is such a temptation that if we do not remain constantly vigilant, even those with strong, a strong theology of grace will fall into some level of works salvation. We all, at our sinful core, are legalists. We view the world through a right versus wrong perspective where everyone who does wrong is labeled evil and all who do right are labeled good. The label is not just for others. We judge ourselves through a similar lens, although oftentimes a little less stringently. <laughs> After all, we have legitimate reasons for our sin, right? If we do good according to our core beliefs, then we are good. If we do wrong, then we are evil. This is how we perceive the world. It's how we know who to trust and who to be leery of. When it comes to salvation, while we may say the right words, I am saved by grace, we often don't live them out. Countless Christians walk through each day filled with crippling guilt and shame, because although they are saved by grace, they believe the demands of their legalistic minds that say their recurring sin has placed an insurmountable gulf between them and Jesus. 
On the other hand, there are others who are pridefully treading on the thin ice of a close relationship with Jesus because of their self-disciplined life of holiness. While they typically give praise to God when surrounded by their fellow believers, inwardly they are patting themselves on the back for their successes. Neither of these Christians are living out the full ramifications of their stated belief that they are saved by grace. Even worse, they're dishonoring the painful sacrifice of Jesus. Their legalistic tendencies have focused their eyes on the works done and undone. And they are actually living in opposition to the salvation they have received. Despite being fully forgiven, fully adopted, and fully united with Christ, they are still living as condemned and rejected outsiders. To be saved by grace means we have not done and cannot do anything to receive salvation. We can't beg for it. We can't work for it. We can't pay for it. We can't even make a trade for it. Many a Christian has expressed their commitment to live their life in an effort to pay back at least some of what Jesus has done for them. While this sounds good and it is certainly right for us to live our lives for Jesus, if we are doing so in order to pay him back, we are rejecting salvation by grace. As Christians, we do, as Christians, everything we do with a motivation to appease God is evil and rebellious to Jesus. Let me say that again. As Christians, everything we do with a motivation to appease God is evil and rebellious to Jesus. Even the good things we do, if they are done with any sense that we can earn our place by God's side, is simply an arrogant and sinful act. There are too many Christians who have for too many years lived their lives in an effort to appease God. Fearful that if they don't do the right things, he will punish them, separate from them, and eventually destroy them. Our sinful nature is obsessed with laws. It is addicted to cause and effect thinking and living. It is the only lens that it views the world through, and it's the lens of legalism. It is, a const it is constantly telling us that we must toe the line of righteousness or God will strike us down. We have to measure up or we will be left out. Despite the clear teaching that we are saved by grace, our nature still drives us to do all we can to show God we are worth the sacrifice. But legalism is not the way of salvation. It doesn't matter how righteous we are. We will never meet the standards because the standard is perfection. Every one of us is sinful and rebellious. Every one of us has followed our own law instead of the law. 
Our creator is the one who determines the way in which we are to live. He is the one who decides our purpose and what is pleasing to him and what is not. The great and awesome transcendent Lord of all that is not only created us, but he shared with us what is right and wrong within his created order. With his own voice and with his very own hand, he dictated and wrote his law in the presence of Moses. As a result, our sinfulness is not an ignorant mistake whereby we can claim some kind of innocence. No, our our rebellion is calculated and purposeful. We've known full well how evil our actions are, and yet we have freely chosen them. This is actually the great benefit of the law. It reveals the difference between good and evil. It judges each person's actions, words, and even thoughts. Indeed, this is the exact purpose of the law. God gave it to us so that we would know what is right and what is wrong. But it doesn't stop there. It also reveals the awesome holiness of God and our utter and complete depravity. As a matter of fact, of all the people who have walked this earth over the last 3,500 years since the law was given, there has only been one person who has been perfectly obedient to the law. That's right. Out of an estimated 90 to 100 billion people, only one person is righteous. And believe it or not, it's not you. With our total inability to live up to the standards of the law and having a God who demands perfection, our future is sure. Condemnation is all we can hope to receive on that day when we breathe our last and meet our maker. As we stand before his judgment seat and the highlight video of our life is projected for all to see, while certainly there will be flashes of what seems to us to be good, the overwhelming flood of evil we see will prove even to our deceived hearts that we indeed deserve and have freely chosen the eternal judgment we are about to receive. In that moment, we will see clearly not just the deep darkness of our sin and our depravity of our heart, but also the awe-inspiring holiness of God. And in that clarity, we will understand our total inadequacy to be near such a glorious being. We will recognize the perfect justice that must take place in order to rid his presence of such filth. The law is good. It reveals the ridiculousness of any thought that we would be able to make, that would make us believe and act as though there is anything we can do that would make us acceptable to our holy God. Even the best of us, the most selfless, the most generous, the most humble are, in, are completely despicable next to him. We don't deserve to live in such an awesome creation 
with such a powerful and good God. We have nothing to offer him. We have nothing to promise. There is nothing he needs from us, nothing we can do for him. He is fully capable of surviving and thriving without us. And even our existence is a greater gift than we deserve or could ever earn. Moreover, creating us has had a negative, a net negative impact on God's perfect creation. We are the reason for death, for destruction, for pain, for suffering, and for broken relationships. Without us, there would be no such thing as evil. Our desperate cry for salvation is not in hopes of being saved from an evil world that we, without our permission, have been thrust into. No, our pleading for our creator to save us from the dark depravity that lies within. We don't need salvation from his world. We need salvation from ourselves. But it is in this state of desperation that our holy God not only hears our cry, but he steps in to make a way of salvation for our foolish and despicable ways. Even as we continually continue to willfully live out our vileness, he listens to our despairing hearts. His compassion is stirred, and despite the depth of our depravity, his love for us is deeper still. He has a forgiving heart and longs to be reconciled to those he created in his image. Not because they deserve it. Not because he regrets how he created us or because he realizes he made some kind of mistake. No, he opens a door of salvation for his creatures because his perfect nature overflows with mercy and with grace. Our heavenly father, his heart is filled with love for us. So much so that he can't help but pursue his children. His son so longs to reconcile us to his father that he willingly comes and offers his life while at the same time the spirit eagerly sparks new life in all who confess and believe. Because of the completely undeserving and amazing grace of God, the father, son, and spirit join together to offer us the free choice to accept Jesus as Lord, Savior, Sanctifier, Redeemer, Justifier, and Friend. Those of us who can push back our sinful nature, if even for just a moment, can hear the good news and accept salvation by grace. Stepping through the narrow gate of grace, we will not, uh, uh, stepping through the narrow gate of grace will not allow anything to come in with us. We are forced to enter without any strength, without any effort, without any gifts. We enter with no accolades, no accomplishments and no skills. The only way to receive salvation by grace is on our knees. 
with a poor spirit, a humble and broken heart, in such desperate need that all we can do is throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus in hopes he will have mercy on our souls. And it is then that our hopes are realized as our sweet and gracious Savior accepts us into his rest and gently pours his blood of forgiveness over our fractured lives. But it is after this sweet entrance through the narrow gate of grace that our sinful nature, our legalistic nature, alerts us to the fact that it's not dead yet. As a matter of fact, we find quite early in our Christian journey that for all of the emphasis on grace to receive salvation, once saved, the rules are very similar to the world. Indeed, our sinful nature and its abhorrence with grace can often find salvation to be a comfortable place. All the talk about having nothing to offer Jesus before salvation seems to go away once saved. Often on our first Sunday, we are introduced to all the work it'll take to be a successful in this new Christian world. There's discipleship programs, small groups, outreach and community service events. Any sense that Christ's death had ushered us into the eternal presence of God is quickly vanquished as we are instructed how important prayer is in order to get close and stay close to Jesus. Testimonies of mature believers describing how they felt their prayers just bouncing off the ceiling when they were not in line with God's will are the final evidence in order to set us straight. No matter how much we relied on grace to receive salvation, it will not help us here. It'll take a lots of work and discipline to be successful in the kingdom of God. I hope there's something inside you that at least feels uncomfortable with this graceless kingdom I've just described. For some, you've struggled to keep maybe from screaming out, no! <laughs> but no matter how loud we protest, the idea that the Christian life is a merit-based existence, that we are all susceptible, we are all susceptible to it. We're all susceptible to the deceptions that come from that. Our legalistic nature came in with us through the narrow gate and is still doing its best along with our great enemy, to taint the grace-filled greatness of the Christian life. They are constantly working to get us focused on ourselves. Through spinning our failures into shame and our successes into pride. Every step we take, whether right or wrong, is twisted by Satan to be a step toward Jesus or away from him. He is constantly working to neutralize the joy of salvation by igniting fear of judgment or pride of accomplishment. Our sinful nature craves credit for good things we do. And we Christians are not immune to its influence. Even when we start with proper praise and thankfulness for the successes Jesus allows us to enjoy, the temptation remains just as strong. 
There's always a threat that our defeat of one sin sparks the next sin. A vast number of Christians, while giving respectful thanks to God, are totally consumed by their own greatness. After all, look how far they've come and all they've accomplished. Look how well they know God's word, how influential they are, how many people they've mentored, how much scripture they've memorized, how many souls they've had led to Jesus, how many mission trips they've gone on, how many people they've prayed for, how much money they've given, how clearly they hear the voice of God, how often they speak in tongues, how many have been healed when they prayed, how great they raised their children, how many marriages they've reconciled, how many drug addicts they've gotten out of this office the streets. Even the seemingly small successes have the tendency to increase the size of hat that we wear. We prayed and it happened. We repented and he restored me. We obeyed and he rewarded us. Every success in the Christian life has the opportunity to immediately be turned into our failure. Hopefully you know the truth that every success we enjoy as a Christian is because of the amazing grace of our Heavenly Father. That's right. Grace is not just a requirement for salvation. It is the way of the new world we entered. It's the mode of operation in the kingdom of God. We are constantly enjoying the grace of God no matter what we do, whether we do his will or whether we sin against him. It's grace that allows us to have a success because in and of ourselves we can do nothing right. And it's grace that keeps us one with Jesus even in the midst of our sin. Once we've been united with him, we cannot be separated. Nothing separates us from the love, acceptance, and presence of Jesus. Now, some will argue that Paul instructs us to run the race marked out for us and to run it in order to win. He encourages us to put off sin and put on righteousness. He tells us we need to work out our salvation, sure, with fear and trembling and with the help of Jesus, but we are to work nonetheless. Jesus seems to destroy any argument for us to live a life founded on grace by the statement in James. James seems to destroy, excuse me. James seems to destroy any argument for us to live a life founded on grace by his statement in James. James 2, 17 and 18. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It seems obvious. According to scripture, the Christian life is meant to be filled with our efforts to run the race, live righteously, work our salvation and prove our faith through, our, through good deeds. In part, I agree, but the question has to be asked, what is the nature of our work? What kind of work do we do? Are we the instigators of the work or is God? Do we do the work alone or is God helping us? If God helps us, how much does he do and how much do we do? All these statements made by Paul and James are true, but they do not say our success in the kingdom of God is dependent on us. We have a role to play, but not the key role. Truth is the only way, the only thing we do to enjoy all that Jesus wants to do through us is to put our faith 
in him. We are not just saved by grace through faith. We are sanctified the same way. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus is not just our savior. He is our sanctifier. He isn't just the way to salvation. He's the life of salvation. It is by his amazing grace that we are given the strength to put off our sinfulness and enjoy his righteousness. It is by grace that we are motivated and empowered to work out our salvation. It is by grace that our faith results in a changed life. It is through focusing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12 says, that, uh, that we are able to run the race that is revealed and that we have the power to run that race. It is through seeking to know and follow Jesus that sinful ways within us are defeated and his righteousness is enjoyed. It is enjoying our intimate relationship with Jesus that we see the wonderful works he's created for us to do and are empowered to do them. The effort that we are to put in is not to accomplish anything. We don't strive to be righteousness, righteous. We don't strive to be sanctified. We don't strive to appease God and be accepted by him. No, all these things are ours by the amazing grace of God. As a result, the life of a Christian is quite simple. All we do is spend our life enjoying all the benefits with our relation that come from our relationship with Jesus. It is out of our enjoyment of Jesus that righteousness happens. Holiness is realized and ministry is accomplished. Too many of us are scared to stop doing and just be with Jesus. We think it will need it will lead <laughs> we think it will lead us to be lazy Christians who just sit around and sing kumbaya. But that is the legalist in us talking. Remember Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Martha was busy accomplishing many things for Jesus. But Mary just sat at the feet of Jesus and listened and learned. The thing Jesus wants most from us is for us to know and enjoy him. Like Mary, he wants us to sit at his feet and listen and learn and follow him. And shockingly, sitting at the feet of Jesus is the most productive thing we can do. Acts 15 highlights the great debate of the early church and whether they were going to embrace not just Gentiles, but more importantly, would they embrace salvation by grace? While the results of that debate have had a powerful impact on the church and solidified a key doctrine to all of Christian history, the debate is not over. Every one of us has to decide for ourselves whether we are going to accept salvation and sanctification 
by grace. It goes against our natural tendencies. We are addicted to getting credit or blame for whatever we do. We find great comfort and pride in knowing we've done something good. And even though it doesn't feel good, there's also comfort in feeling the shame that comes when we do something bad. The shame seems worth it if it means we can get the glory when we turn ourselves around. But this is not the way or the life of salvation. In God's economy, grace rules. Those who receive and live by grace are the ones who are in alignment with the way of Christ. Those who seek to know and follow Jesus are the ones who do the works they were created for. Those who don't rely on their own power, but on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, are the ones who accomplish the things set out for them to do. It is those who sit at the feet of Jesus and trust him that will enjoy the full benefit of their salvation, their adoption, their redemption, their justification, and their oneness with Jesus. Worship team, why don't you come on up? It seems strange in a, in a church 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection to preach a, a message about uh, the battle, uh, the debate that rages on over whether or not we are saved by grace. But it has been my experience in my life that I think while verbally none of us would say that being saved by grace is not true, we, we all would accept that theology. I think the way we live is so often contradictory to that belief. And, and I will say this too, and, and I'm pointing my finger at myself on this one especially, but I think we in the church, the way that we talk about the Christian life leaves people, leads people to believe that their, that their, their sanctification is based on them, like what their abilities and their skills and their efforts. We, we, we talk so often about feeling far from God or talk so often about how, you know, we've fallen away from God. And these, these, these terms that we use, if someone doesn't know grace by faith, right, they don't know salvation by grace. They, 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 they see that and they go, oh, well, this is a works thing. I, this is a really, I got to make sure I do all the things I'm supposed to do in order to, be a pe in order to appease God so that he doesn't reject me. We have to learn to, I think, full, more fully embrace and live out salvation by grace. Maybe many of you in here are good on this and, and the battle, you've, it's, it's, it's won. But, I, but for me, I know that I continue to fight that even in preparation for this sermon. Like, you know, thinking that I've got to somehow do this right. You know, I've got to make sure I appease God. I make sure I do the right thing. If I mess up, oh my gosh, what's he going to do? How is he going to punish me? What's, what's going to happen if I stumble or if I say something wrong? Or if I, what? It, it, I think we're just so surrounded by legalism that it, it, it works its way so easily into our life, Christ. But, but understanding that, like, I, 
Like literally. All he wants from me is to be in his presence and be with him, to know him, to, to hang out with him, to know that that's it. And we, we get scared away. Again, the idea of, oh, we're just going to be lazy Christians, so you're never going to read your Bible, you're never going to go to church. No, 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 no. If you are hanging out with Jesus, he will inspire all of those things. He will lead us into all of those things. But we so often look at doing those things so that we can get close to Jesus, so we can appease Jesus, so that we can somehow, like, oh, look, there's my favorite child. Yeah, come on in. You can sit right next to me. No, 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 that's not it. It is the opposite. We don't work to get to Jesus. We're already with Jesus. Can we sit there and be with him? And then when he inspires us to pray, then that prayer is in his will. That prayer then has power in it, not because we're doing it, not because of it's our effort, because it's his will, and we know it's his will because he's empowering us to do it. If the battle is not done in your own heart, then let me encourage you. Don't give up. If you didn't even know that the battle is waging and maybe right now you're, being re you're recognizing that for the first time, then let me encourage you, fight. Get up and fight against it. Don't give in to pride. Don't give in to shame and guilt. Don't give in to the, 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 the appeasement of the legalistic mindset. You are perfect. You are in his presence. You are adopted fully. You have all of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more you can get from him. He's already given it all. All you have to do is enjoy it. As you enjoy it, you will get to experience the righteousness. You will get to experience the ministry. You'll get to experience the empowerment. You'll get to experience this amazing grace as it's lived out through you and as you share it with others. All right. Let's stand and uh, sing a couple songs, and I'll be back to close in a minute. Thank you, Jesus. It's all about you. You're the focus of it all, Lord, and we thank you for what you've done. Father, we thank you for your love that you pursued us, that you didn't give up on us, that you loved us so much that you, you didn't just destroy us. You, 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 you wanted that intimacy to be restored, that relationship to be restored. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. You longed to be one with us as well and willingly came as a servant and sacrificed your life, and suffered so much on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, as well, for choosing to step in, to, to bring that reconciliation, to create um, and make us a new creation, to unite us in oneness with the with God. Thank you. Thank you for all you've done, Lord. And it all comes not from ourselves. Lord. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to pay you back for it. There's nothing that we can do. Absolutely. There's no way to appease you. There's no way to, 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 to make you happy. There's no way to, to, to get your attention. There's no way to get you to bless us more. There's no way to get you to have a, a, a better feeling about us. All you ask is for us to bow our knee, Accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and Sanctifier and Redeemer and Friend. And you do everything else. 
Lord, help us to live that out, not just believe it, but live it. Lord, the freedom that comes from grace. And we know that we don't have to try to appease you, that we can live just... The, the, the yoke of that is so easy. It's hard for us to accept, but it's true. And as we walk in that yoke, our life just takes on this freedom. So, Lord, we want to experience that. Help us to experience that and understand that and to know it. Help us to fight off the legalistic tendencies that we have. Fight against our sinful nature that says that it's all about us. And help us to see and to know and to follow Jesus. Galatians chapter 2 and then into 3. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, if it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. Know then that it is those, who, uh, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church, for being here. Again, we're going to continue to allow this space to be uh, a space for worship and song and, and prayers that, uh, that are offered. Uh, if you would like to continue in worship and fellowship, then we encourage you to do that in the fellowship hall. Uh, if you would like prayer, if you feel like uh, you need someone to come alongside you uh, in understanding more fully this grace, uh, living by grace, but maybe uh, fighting off this uh, tendency to be legalist, then please come forward. We'd love to pray for you. If you'd like prayer for healing, we'd love to pray for you. If there's anything else going on you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. So please come forward. Church, have a blessed day. God bless you all, and we'll see you again soon.